So good afternoon, everyone. I think we should start. It's two minutes after 12. It is my privilege and pleasure to introduce David, our new thoracic surgery chief for to the Norris Cotton Cancer Center Grand Rounds. It has been a long time. We've waited, and I think it was definitely worth the wait. Dr. Finley is an established thoracic surgeon who got his medical degree in Northern New England, UVM. And he went to Sloan Kettering. He went to um, do general surgery in Loyola, then thoracic surgery in Sloan Kettering, where he went through the ranks, became an associate professor, saw the light and decided that yep, Northern New England is the place that I want to be, and especially Stratford. Yeah. Stratford. Yep. 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 My in-laws. Where his in-laws are. And the kind of energy that David brings, I think, will definitely help us grow the thoracic oncology program. And he will tell us about advances in the treatment of lung cancer today. He has no financial disclosures to make for this presentation. He will not discuss unapproved or unlabeled uses of drugs or devices. And we'll have time for questions at the end. So David, thank you very much for joining our team and for presenting today. Right. Thank you very much. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you very much, Constantine. It's a pleasure being here. Um, and um, when I saw negative 14 this morning, I said, well, it was, at least it wasn't as bad as last week. It was negative 19. Um, so I spent a lot of time at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And while I was there, um, you know, I, I pretty much a little boy at heart. I like to play with toys. And um, I've been given the opportunity with surgery because I do device development. And uh, with device development means that you get to play with them. And this is pretty much what this talk is about. It's going to be pretty lean on specifics and kind of big on ideas. Um, when talking about disclosures, the only thing is I am on the scientific advisory board for both Ethiclon Global Surgical and Olympus, um, but neither of them have anything to do with the talk that I'm giving today. What I'd like to do is kind of talk about how we do things now, the technology that we have currently in thoracic surgery for both diagnosis and treatment of lung cancer. And then I'd actually kind of like to go into a little bit about robotics and the uses of robotics and some of the future of the technology within the area of diagnosis and treatment of lung cancer. So there's this thing called electromagnetic navigational bronchoscopy. We're going to talk about what it is, why do we use it, and how do we use it. It goes by lots of names, ENB, SuperD, SDI, Logic. The way to think about it, it's GPS for the lung. Now, what they basically did was they took a catheter tip and they put in it little coils, and these coils allow them to kind of send back to a computer system where it is. And you put a person on a little pad of an electromagnetic field, and you stick the catheter in, and it tells you you are here or here or here based on a preoperative CT scan. And it's pretty impressive in the sense that you're usually within about, I'd say, two millimeters of where you think you are. And it does it in real time so that it allows you to put a bronchoscope in and say, I want to go to this lung lesion, and you follow yourself. So why do we use it, and who do we use it on? 
So patients who can't undergo specific procedures is really what we want to think about. So they can't tolerate a VATS procedure or a video-assisted surgical procedure. Or they have adhesions from previous surgery so that if you wanted to do surgery on them, it would be very difficult to get inside the chest cavity. Or they're at high risk for a lung collapse if you're going to be doing a transthoracic needle biopsy. So if people with really bad emphysema, this procedure is, is uh, well tolerated and also is lower risk. If you need to stage the mediastinum, so if you're going to also try to biopsy some of the lymph nodes at the same time, doing this bronch bronchoscopic biopsy at the same time of doing an EBUS is both beneficial to the patient in terms of fewer procedures. It also reduces the risk and the cost. Um, there are a lot of patients who don't want to have surgery, and they say, just find out what it is, doc, and then uh, you know, we'll do radiation or we'll do some other treatment. Um, or if there's multiple nodules that you have to biopsy at the same time, because the risk is so low with this procedure, that unlike doing a transthoracic needle biopsy where you can only do one nodule at a time, you can actually do multiple nodules to diagnose patients. We know that it increases the yield of a standard bronchoscopic biopsy. Blind success, though it says 20 to 84, I would say in general you're looking at about less than 50% in most uh, lesions that are beyond the, um, the carina or the center, center portion of the chest. We know that it's less than 14% when it's less than 2 centimeters if you're just doing a blind bronchoscopic biopsy. When you do ENB, it raises it up to about 74%. Now, this number is biased, right? Because this is this was, this was the initial um, uh, results. The results now are probably about 65%, but still better than a blind bronchoscopic biopsy. We know that it has lower complication rates. If you do a CT-guided needle biopsy in a standard patient, it's a 15 to 25% pneumothorax rate. And about a third of those patients, you have to do something about it. Most of the time, you can kind of just watch them. But if you have bullet emphysema, it's upwards of 55%. And these are patients that get into the hospital with a tube and have to stay in for a week at a time because the, the uh, air leak that they have won't go away. With ENB, it's a 1.2 to 3.4% pneumothorax rate. And this is actually, if you do it with, uh, if you're not within two centimeters of the pleura, currently the literature is 0% pneumothorax rate associated with it. Very low risk of bleeding, unlike bleeding with a CT-guided uh, finitol aspirate. That was actually probably my first week as a, um, a thoracic fellow at Memorial. I got called down by one of the anesthesiologists who never panics ever, and she was panicked. Um, and they had already had 500 cc's of blood come out of the ET tube and a prone patient intubated in the CT unit um, because of a needle biopsy. So it, it happens. With, with, CT, with uh, ENB biopsies, it almost never happens. And even if it does, you can block the airway off and stop it immediately. And Something that I like is that there's no scarring within the pleural space, so if there is bleeding from a CT-guided needle biopsy, it can cause some scarring and you have adhesions, which makes a further surgical procedure afterwards more difficult. What we do is we take the patient, we get a CT scan on them. And when we get the CT scan, we can create a 3D airway from this. And so we can go in and we can say, hmm, what's going on? Now, this isn't a patient with lung cancer. This is actually a patient who had a tracheal stenosis of mine that I had a, a really cool image on. Um, but it allows us to do a 3D, 3D airway of these patients to know, okay, you know, the lesion's sitting out here by this, by this airway, so we're going to follow this down and go out this airway. Then what we can do is we create what's called a virtual bronchoscopy. You've heard of virtual colonoscopy and everything else. I actually can create the airway model and see it in real time to where I'm going. So I can follow myself down, I'm going to go to the right-hand side, and then, oh, I think I'm going to go to the right upper lobe bronchus. And so I see this at the time that I'm doing the bronchoscopy. I'm following myself with this catheter. It's showing me this image and showing me exactly where I'm going. I mean, it's really kind of an idiot can do it. That's why most surgeons can do it. It works out pretty well. <laughs> 
So what you have is you have a standard bronchoscope and you have the catheter that has the tip on it, which is called the locator, lo locatable guide. This is where the, the sensors are. <clears throat> and you put it through the bronchoscope and you advance it down. This is the actual image software, the, the system. And what you get is you get your real-time image on the right side and you get your virtual image on the left side. And you can see the tip of the, the catheter here is basically where the purple dot is there. And it has this really cool way so it, it is able to know where it is in space 160 times per second. So you get 160 points per second of where the tip of this catheter is in space. And it creates what's called a cloud plot. Cloud plot is basically, as the catheter is moving, it shows all of these little dots. And it creates a cloud of where, it's, where it is. And it takes that, and it correlates it directly to the 3D bronchoscopy that you created from the CT image. And those two things combined allow it to know exactly where the catheter is on the CT scan. So you can just follow yourself while you're doing it. And so I say, oh, I need to find where the left upper lobe bronchus is. I go over here. I push a little button. I just tell it where the different kind of you know, five points in space, and then it knows where it is for the rest of the procedure. And then we follow ourselves down the trachea, through the bronchus, down to the lower lobe, and then we do a biopsy. And there's different biopsy techniques. There's, we have needles, we have uh, brushes, we have biopsy forceps, and it allows us to go in. There's actually a new cryoprobe that allows us to go in there, and we freeze the tip of it, and it causes tissue to attach to it, and we just kind of yank a little bit, and it takes a, a little bit of a better biopsy. It doesn't have the cr crush artifact that we normally have. <clears throat> And then, while you're doing it, you're looking for the green dot. So this is another image from the same thing. So now I know that I have to get to this lesion. And it shows me right where my catheter is. So I, leave the I take the catheter out, and there's a sheath that goes over the catheter. It's called a guide sheath. It leaves it in place. And then I can just put all the various instruments down there, and I can biopsy what I need to biopsy. Um, so that's one way to get to biopsy things without having patients undergo more difficult or dangerous procedures or higher complication rate procedures. Another way, we used to always use mediastinoscopy to do biopsies of the mediastinal lymph nodes. It's kind of standard in surgical procedure. The problem is that it has about a 0.2% bleeding rate and about a 0.1% death rate. So it's not without complication. Uh, it also means that you completely scar the mediastinum after doing the procedure so that if you biopsy their lymph nodes and then you need to do surgery on them after, say, induction chemotherapy or something else, then you're going through a scarred field, which makes it more difficult. So EBUS came along. And what it basically is is it's an ultrasound fixed on the end of a bronchoscope. Nothing special. You can see both the ultrasound and the white light images at the same time, and it allows you to do Doppler flow. You can characterize what lesions look like, and you can biopsy them. Simple setup. The thing that's nice about it is a 30-degree angled scope, so you can actually watch where your needle's coming out. This is the ultrasound, and this channel allows you to put various things through it. So you can put biopsy force rips through it, needles through it, uh, brushes as well. And what you get is basically this. You see the white light image. You go down to where you are. You ultrasound, and you can see the lymph node. And you base it upon your CT, got, you know, your CT image that you do preoperatively. And all you're doing is you're using the, there's a little water balloon that goes around it to give you better imaging. And you can see the lymph node, and you actually see the real-time image right here. This normally is in color, and this would show the Doppler flow image. This is the uh, superior vena cava, because this is a right level four lymph node. You see the superior vena cava, and then you see your lymph node that's around it. And you can see the needle actually in the lymph node. And so we have real-time imaging of biopsying. What this has done is it's changed our ability to make sure that we actually get a specimen and not only that we get a specimen, we get the specimen that we're going for. Just like when you do an EUS for a patient that has esophageal cancer, you can look at the lymph node and based upon ultrasound criteria, determine if it is or is not involved. We have the same criteria for within the lung. 
the benefit of this over a mediastinoscopy is a mediastinoscopy can get level 7, left level 4, and right level 4. Maybe right level 10 if you have someone that's a little risky and they're going to be willing to go underneath the pulmonary artery. EBUS, I've gotten level 12s. You, level 11, level 10 are easy. All four, two, level 7. You can also get the AP window node if there's a big enough window, so you can actually go right through level 4 and get to the level 5 lymph nodes and level 11 on the other side. So you can not only stage the mediastinum, you can stage the entire hilum. So if I have a patient that comes in, it's not uncommon. They have a left upper lobe lesion. They have some left hilar and right hilar lymphadenopathy. It looks like it might be sarcoid or granulomatous disease or something else. But you're saying, well, I need to make sure before I go and resect them, you can biopsy all of them and not do any surgical procedure on them. And then the, it takes us about 30 minutes, and they leave the same day. So it's an outpatient procedure. It's a great way to do it. So 2, 4, 7, 10, and 11, we can also do peribronchial masses, mediastinal tumors, lung cancers, esophageal cancer, benign lesions. This is actually pretty nice to be able to go in and say, oh, that's just a bronchogenic cyst, and you can aspirate it, and you're done. You don't have to have anything else done on it. And then lung masses, and what we found is masses that are near the airway um, that are more proximal, we're able to biopsy uh, under ultrasound guidance, and we have a higher yield associated with them, especially uh, ones that are necrotic in the center. You can see that necrosis on the ultrasound, and you can actually have the needle sky the edge of the tumor so that you can get a better specimen for the pathologist, and you can get molecular off of it. Um, I would say that there's almost no chance of bleeding when you do it. EBUS, I've, um, I've actually put the needle purposefully through the pulmonary artery to get to a lymph node beyond it. And as long as they don't have pulmonary hypertension or they're over the age of 80, which is kind of my cutoff, uh, there shouldn't be any problems uh, with bleeding. Um, there's not been any report, uh, reported infections, and I would say very rare for a central biopsy. Really, the only time that you get a pneumothorax is if you are biopsying through the trachea and trying to get a, a right upper lobe lesion because you're actually crossing the pleural space to get into the lung. Otherwise, it's, it's pretty uncommon. We... Um, it used to do intraoperative cytology, and we're going to be talking about what the use of that is. And so you actually have a cytotech or a cytologist in the room with you, and they're able to tell you not only adequacy, but they're able to tell you how abundant the cells are. And that's really important now in the age of molecular, because if you don't get enough cells, you've done a biopsy for no reason. At least from my standpoint, we have upwards of 40% of our patients will have some kind of molecular change depending on you know, the population that they're in. And really what it also does is it reduces the time, number of times that I need to biopsy them. You know, in the literature, if you don't have an intraoperative cytotech there, usually you biopsy four times, with a minimum of three passes each time. And so you sit there and you biopsy, you get the specimen out, you biopsy, you get the specimen out. I can get the biopsy, give it to the cytotech, and they go, yeah, and it's really cellular, you don't need any more, just put the rest in cytolite so we can spin this down. And I'm done, and I move on to the next station. So it reduces operative time, reduces the cost associated with it, and allows me to guarantee that a person doesn't have a procedure without getting a diagnosis before they leave the room. And no need for a mediastinoscopy, which is probably one of the most important things. So then moving into kind of the world of minimally invasive surgery, we know that we can take lung cancer out, and it used to be done with a thoracotomy. Actually, I think Mass General is still doing it with a thoracotomy and taking a rib out. Um, <laughs> so this is Dr. Millington. Tim Millington is the thoracic surgeon. is also starting. He's going to be starting in about a week, um, trying to build the team back up again. He was at Mass General. They've been doing it since 1882 or whatever. Why change now? 1811. Oh, 1811. Why change now? <laughs> So, um, so VATS was, a, was, a, uh, was started from laparoscopic surgery, so they took the idea of laparoscopy and they just said, let's go do it in the chest. Um, 
They did initially it was just for diagnostic procedures. We're going, we'll do a biopsy, we'll do a little wedge resection. They expanded the indications as they improved the technique as well as the instruments. Um, and so then they started doing lobectomies. And this was kind of pioneered by a couple of centers across the country. So Rob McKenna out in California, um, down at Duke and at Memorial Sloan Kettering Valley Rouge kind of decided that they were going to bring this technology in and really make it into something real. Um, but it was really interesting. You look at the literature during that time, and there were, there were editorials that said, actually, Rob Serfolio, um, who now is a huge component of robotics, uh, wrote an editorial stating that it was tantamount to medical malpractice to perform a VATS lobectomy on a patient because you couldn't do the same oncologic procedure. And this is, so just like every time new technology comes in, everyone thinks it's the worst thing possible and we don't need change, and then things change and people realize that it might be better. So it's been shown to be safe and effective for early stage lung cancer. Multiple studies have shown that vasculectomy is superior to open for postoperative pain, time off from work, complication rate, local recurrence, and long-term survival. Right? This is, this is, these are multi-center trials that have shown these things. Now, we just did a quality of life, or at Memorial Sloan Kettering, there was a quality of life study that looked specifically at VATS versus open lobectomy and the quality of life. And what they found was is that there was, there was an improvement in quality of life initially after surgery with the VATS group, but that it, it was equal at two months and that actually the, the open thoracotomy group might have a better quality of life or a perceived better quality of life at a year. <clears throat> and what they're teasing out is that they... People who had a VATS procedure were expecting to have no pain at all and not to have any of the symptoms of shortness of breath afterwards. And so were not as satisfied with the procedure because they thought it would be, they'd do better than they did. And the thoracotomy thought that they were going to do worse and so that they ultimately felt better. It's kind of interesting psychology going along with it. So, but why is it better than open, right? Like what's, what, so easily, yeah, it's smaller incisions. So less pain, easier to heal, limited damage to the chest wall muscles. And that there's less pain, and so that means it's easier for people to take a deep breath. They can ambulate sooner. But the question is, are we getting lower levels of stress hormones, and is there decreased recurrence because of that? And this is some of the data coming out. Or is it because of bias that most of these patients were early-stage lung cancers, and that we were resecting early-stage lung cancers that were smaller tumors? And so though we're saying it's stage for stage in actuality, it might be one-centimeter tumors versus a three-centimeter tumor, each being considered stage 1A. It hasn't been teased out in the literature yet. But what's bad about it? You know, chopstick-like instruments. I always kind of talk about it. It's like old robots. They just kind of move their arms like this is all you can do when you do VATS. There's no ability. You can twist, but you can't. You have no wrists at the end. You have decreased dexterity and limited by the difficulty of the, of the operation, meaning that if there's something about the anatomy that's difficult, if there's scar tissue, if they've gotten induction therapy, like radiation therapy, or it's a reoperative field, <clears throat> you don't have any kind of the benefits of the open procedure because you have longer instruments, and you don't really get that tactile feedback, and you don't have the same dexterity with them. Because when you're working with an instrument that's 30 centimeters long, and it's at a, there's a fulcrum, it's hard to kind of make sure that you get the angles correct. The other problem is that standard imaging. You have absolutely no depth perception. We kind of use relative size of things inside the chest cavity as to how far we are in, and there's no magnification associated with it. So VATS is good. Don't get me wrong, it's, it's much better than, a, I think, a thoracotomy for a lot of patients. And the pulmonary complications um, that were seen after thoracotomy are significantly reduced when you do a VATS because people do get up sooner, they have less pain, and they can cough and take a breath better. But it's not great. It's not the best that we can do. Then we move into robotic surgery. And it was initially created for cardiac surgery. And really interesting, it, it almost, uh, almost no one does cardiac surgery robotically. There's a couple of centers in the country that do it, but most don't. It's usually just used for mitral 
uh, repairs. And there's only a few, a few centers performing it, but it expanded rapidly into many fields. And this, honestly, was 100% marketing. This was a company that came in and said, we're going to make you look good. We're going we're gonna to give you a fancy tool. You're going to essentially do the same operation, but you're going to say that you're doing it robotically and you're going to get patients. And so everyone jumped on the bandwagon. Urology, gynecology, head and neck, everyone jumped on the bandwagon and said, we're going to do this. Now, there have been some studies that have shown that prostatectomies done robotically versus VATs, right? So, or, or laparoscopic, that robotic is better for patients with lower nerve injuries and better lymph node dissections, and it's because it's so difficult to do it as a laparoscopic procedure. But there's almost no difference between robotic and open, except for the incision. Gynecology, hysterectomy, there's no difference at all. It's been shown, but there's benefits in the lymph node dissection, again, and the ability to do mapping and things like that. So we're finding the smaller indications is not this kind of broad area where everyone said, it's, ah, oh, this is the best thing to do. Head and neck, actually, there's a lot of stuff that it's beneficial for because they have five millimeter instruments and better imaging, and you have a stable platform, so you can really work within the posterior oropharynx much better than you can. So taking out tonsillar tumors and things like that robotically is probably better than, than uh, trying to do it as an open procedure because you don't have to do these huge. And then the, they also have some of the... Um, the base of the skull stuff that they're doing robotically. It's very, very cool stuff. But so thoracic surgery said, you know, we need to jump on the bandwagon because this is going to be fun. And then we said, oh, we could do lobes and segments, and we can take out anterior mediastinal tumors and posterior mediastinal tumors. Maybe we can do esophagectomies and do benign parasophageal hernias or diaphragm resection and other things. And then we said, well, is it really better, and can we do it better? <clears throat> and that was kind of what I was tasked with. I was, my, our group, when I was at Memorial, said, we want you to figure out, one, how to do the robotics procedures, two, who to do it in, and then three, is it any better or not? And so we asked, okay, so what are the theoretical benefits of robotic surgery? We know that we're going to decrease the hospital stay because it's VATS. It's essentially a VATS procedure with a robot instead of just a regular camera. We should be able to decrease the complications, and potentially we can improve survival. And we know that in both lung and esophageal cancer, when you look at complication rates, if you have a person who has an esophagectomy, and they have a complication that's a grade two or higher. So grade ones no one cares about, but grade two or higher. You have a 30% increase in chance of recurrence in that patient as compared to a person who doesn't have, stage for stage, who doesn't have a complication. So we know by reducing complications, we can improve survival. And we might also decrease the operative time because it decreases the anesthesia, it decreases the inflammatory cytokines. So we've known that the longer that an operation is, again, with esophagectomies, if an esophagectomy goes over eight hours, you decrease survival associated with that patient by about 10 to 15%, absolute percentage points, as compared to doing it less than six hours. The gray zone is between six and eight hours as to whether or not there's a, there's a difference. We know that there's impute visualization because we have 3D stereo viewing. It's contrast enhanced. It's magnified. And truly, there's no medical student holding the camera. And I know most people haven't been in, but when you have a medical student who doesn't know how to control a camera, you literally get seasick. I mean, it's just you're kind of like, no, no, stop, no, get over there. It's really difficult. Um, we know that there's a steep learning curve. It's easier to learn than VATS. The problem with VATS is oftentimes you're working against the camera. So you're actually working in opposite direction of the way that you're looking. And so you have to think to yourself backwards. So if I move my hand to the right, the instrument goes to the left. And if I move my hand to the left, it goes to the right. And so you have to really think about how you're doing a VATS procedure. With robotics, it's always in line, meaning that no matter what way you're angled, you will always see the image in the direction that you're going. So if you move to the left, it moves to the left, because the computer actually does it for you. So you kind of make sure that it follows you along where the horizon is. <clears throat> so 
There's a couple of studies that look specifically at this. And as I said, this is Rob Serfoli. This is a guy that said it's medical malpractice. If you do a VATS procedure, it's because he was a bad VATS surgeon. And he'll, he'll, he'll say, I am a bad VATS surgeon, but he's a good robotic surgeon. And he looked at about 168 patients that had 106 lobectomies. He converted about 10% of the time. And he had a 27% morbidity. And that was all. That's grade 1 through grade 5 CTCA criteria. And it was 35% for his thoracotomy. So he has a lower complication rate, and this was statistically significant. He had no patient dies. No patient died. There's a question about this. Um, there was a shorter hospital stay, so two days versus four days. And that's, I think, actually a, a big thing is that people are in the hospital less. And that's similar to VATS data. So if you compare VATS to open versus robotic, it's about the same. He concluded that it was safe, less morbidity, less postoperative pain. He thought it was easier as compared to VATS because... Again, he's not a great bat surgeon. Um, he thought that there might be improved survival, the shorter hospital stay, and he definitely thought that it was easier to learn than VATS. And I think that this is important because right now in America, VATS was instituted in 1992, 93. So we've had it for 20 years now. Currently, 75, no, 85% of all lobectomies in the country are done open. Only 15% are done VATS, so minimally invasive across the country. Now, there's a reason for a lot of that. Some of it's because there's still a number of general surgeons and cardiac surgeons who haven't had thoracic training that are doing these procedures, but it's because VATS is so difficult to learn how to do and do it well. And it's a higher risk procedure because if you get into bleeding, you're not there to kind of grab the bleeding vessel. You have to kind of figure out how to do it. So if we can make it easier for people to learn, could we have more patients undergo a minimally invasive procedure, reduce the costs, reduce the hospital stay, and potentially improve survival. So then Bernie Park, um, who was at Memorial at the time, did this with uh, three other or two other institutions, um, uh, two places in Italy, so the length of stay is totally messed up because they never leave the hospital in Italy. Um, and what he did was he looked at actually two, Bernie does a, a three-arm approach, uh, most of us do a forearm, forearm approach, which kind of is a, a sealed um, chest where we actually have four robotic arms and, a, and a, an access port. And this allows us to put CO2 gas insufflation inside the chest cavity uh, and uh, do the procedure completely closed. So you have uh, smaller incisions. And they looked at a total of 325 patients that were 1A and 1B patients. So these were early stage lung cancers. And what they, what they found was that there was a little bit of an upstaging, but they, their five-year survival was um, way better. So if you look at the five-year survival um, by Goldstraw, so this is kind of the, you know, the guy that does all of the five-year survivals for lung cancers, they look at you know, huge populations. It's 160,000 patients um, that they do. The five-year survival for 1A is 73%, and it's 58% for 1B. But in this series of 325 patients, it was 91% and 88%. It was unheard of for lung cancer to have over 90%, actually really over 80% five-year survival at all. And again, the question is whether or not these patients were because it was a selection bias for the early-stage lung cancers were easy. The thing is that they specifically made sure that there weren't ground glass opacities or minimally invasive adenocarcinomas as part of the study. Um, the cost was definitely increased uh, compared to VATS because of the robotic instruments, but it was essentially equal to open because of the hospital stay. You reduce the hospital stay and you kind of cover the cost of the robot. It was an oncologically sound operation because they had the same number of lymph nodes. They had the same amount of upstaging associated with it, and they had um, the same margins associated with it. So it's essentially you're doing the identical procedure. And it was reproducible across multiple centers, and that was something that they really needed to show, is that it, didn't, it wasn't one person in one place who does it well. You can do it multiple places that all can do it well. Then when we were doing it, we made the decision, you know, we need to really kind of think about 
we can do this as a VAST procedure, and it's actually more expensive, and the outcomes are essentially the same. So what's the benefit of a robot in this situation? And I actually think it's really because it's the extended indications for a robotic. Improved dexterity in imaging. You can perform things that can't be done with standard VATS. We need to make sure that it's safe and effective. We need to make sure the outcomes are the same and that we're reviewing them as we go forward. And that we're going to have to create new approaches, new techniques, and instruments as we do this because there's going to be stuff that we're going to come across and say, hmm, I don't know how to do that. We had this exact, so we have our, the, the um, urologist would do nephrectomies robotically. Sometimes renal cancer decides to grow up the renal vein into the IVC. That usually means that you have to do an open procedure and you have to kind of get control on the IVC above and below the renal vein and you kind of do all the stuff. Well, we made a decision that we created instruments called Ramels that we do in cardiac surgery, but we put them around the IVC and we did it robotically. And so we did the first robotic resection of a renal cancer that went up the IVC all robotically. Um, scary when you do it that way and you're doing something new, but it allowed us to do something where normally to have to get a huge incision and not, not having to do that incision anymore. So I was thinking about the different procedures that we could do that we definitely do open in this. One of them is called a bronchoplasty. And a bronchoplasty is basically if you have a tumor that abuts the main airway, you can't cut it like we normally do in lead of a cuff. You have to actually kind of cut it sharply um, at the bronchus itself, and you kind of oversew the bronchus, and you slightly narrow it, but the ongoing bronchus is still open. So he didn't have any lymph node involvement, and he was in excellent health. And we look at the tumors sitting right here. And as you can see, oh, go back. As you can see, it's coming right up, so his airway can't, like, one more cut, the airway sits right here and it's kind of blocked off. This is the upper lobe bronchus is right here. You can kind of see the airways there. So we are sitting right where the airway is. And this is the one that doesn't work. So give me two seconds. And let me see if I can find it. So what you're looking at is, you're looking at the fissure. This is the left upper lobe. This is the left lower lobe. This is the pulmonary artery right here. And this is one of the branches going to the lingula. And what we do is I take a red rubber catheter, and I cut it. I call it a noodle. And we put it on the end of the stapler so it directs the tip of it, so we don't have to kind of worry about who the bedside assistant is. And we take the staples. These are the robotic instruments that I'm using. There's actually three instruments plus the camera. I was, you can see me. I was pushing this over because the bedside assistant was moving it too much. And then what I'm doing is I'm taking a pair of scissors, and this is the airway right here. And this is the lower lobe bronchus going down. And what we're doing is we're cutting the airway open. And these are cardiac scissors, so this is why I'm kind of seem like I'm gnawing through it, because they're meant to be cutting like little things on the, on the heart. And so now we have it open, and we get some needle drivers in, and we say, okay, let's just close it like we normally do. I do exactly the same procedure that I would do open, but I'm going to be doing it minimally invasive. And we take the stitches like we normally do to pull things together. Tie them down like we would normally tie them down open, and we pull the airway together. And you can see we kind of bring this together, and then ultimately the whole bronchus is closed. There we go. 
And this is, at, this is afterwards. So this would normally be the, the, the left upper lobe bronchus would be sitting right here. And this is the left lower lobe bronchus. And you can kind of see the superior segment off to the side. And what we've done is we've just sutured it closed. But this is open more than enough for them to breathe normally through it without any problems. <laughs> then we said, OK, we have other things. You know, this is a guy that during a, during a uh, workup for a sinus tachycardia had a subcranial mass. And when we did an EBUS, it had proteinaceous material and histocytes in it. It was probably a bronchogenic cyst. Um, the problem is, is that it got infected after it was biopsy. So he comes in, he has fevers, and so we said, well, we got to take it out now. We can't really do very much about it. So we resected it, did it through a right chest, did it robotically, and he went home post-up day two with absolutely no issues at all. And this is where the bronchogenic cyst was sitting. You can see it wasn't small. You know? So it's about four by five centimeters. I mean, you were able to take this out all through four 8-millimeter incisions and one 15-millimeter incision to get the specimen out. And then finally, we had a woman that had metachronous stage 1B and stage 3 adenocarcinoma of the right and left lungs. She had undergone chemo RT of the wedge, level 7 lymph node, an outside hospital. And she had an isolated recurrence in the level 5 region, so kind of over the aortic arch up here. <clears throat> and it was treated with a second round of radiation therapy, but unfortunately had absolutely no effect. Right? So she got radiated, and then about three months later, it was competitivity had gone up and it was a little bit bigger. And there was no other disease found anywhere. So this is the only site of disease, and it was sitting kind of right above her aortic arch. And what do you do for this? And where do you go? And it was sitting on the phrenic nerve. There it is, PET positive, right up the aortic arch. This is right where the phrenic nerve will run, like right about there. And you can kind of see the tumor right there. And we said, okay, and then what also you can see is that the pulmonary artery abuts it. So you kind of go up there, that's the end of the pulmonary artery, and there's the lesion right there. So it's abutting the PA, sitting on the aortic arch, on top of the phrenic nerve. And it's been radiated. And it's the only site of disease, and she's not that old. <clears throat> so we said, okay, let's see what we can do. Now, she's had radiation and chemo and all sorts of stuff. And so... She has lots of scar tissue, and that's what kind of all of this is, is that the lung is stuck against the chest wall. And so what we're doing is I'm slowly taking down all the scar tissue. And this visualization is nothing like you get open. If you're trying to do this open, you kind of be sitting on your head to see all the way up at the apex. is all at the top of the lung. And I'm just able to just go through this and take this stuff down with ease, and it allows me to have great visualization. You can see that there's a sucker right here, kind of right at the edge of it. There's a bedside assistant when we're doing this. And what they basically do is they have a suction catheter in there. They can remove specimens from there. And we're just able to take this all down. Sitting right up here, right this part, would be the subclavian artery just below the pleural surface. Again, an area where you have to kind of watch out what you're doing. Now, what you see here is the phrenic nerve with the tumor right up against it. And this is radiation changes. And there's a lymph node above it that's all involved. Right? So this is, a level, this is a level six lymph node, essentially. And this is a level five region right here. And so the lung is adherent to the phrenic nerve where the radiation therapy has been done. So we go into a plane that's clean, a little bit below it, and this is right on the pericardium, so you see the heart's bouncing away. Um, and we'll slowly take off this thing as we come down to where the phrenic nerve is. And this is, this is where the benefit of robotics comes in. I have, you can't see it here, but I have a 3D stereoptic view. So I have complete depth perception of seeing this. I also have the ability to use the wrists of the instrument so that I'm kind of, you kind of see how I can flick things. That's the brachiocephalic vein that I'm pointing out. And it comes across here, and it's actually right behind there. This is the internal mammary artery and vein that come down into the confluence. And here's the phrenic nerve right back there. So this is kind of not a great area to be operating in, but it's something that you can see that's very difficult to see when you're open. Now what we're doing is we're using a bipolar 
on the phrenic nerve. And we know that when you get near a nerve, if you try to use standard cautery, you'll actually damage it and it'll never work again. But using bipolar keeps the, the, um, the, electric, uh, the electric current between the two tips, and it doesn't really cause much damage to the structures around it. Now what I'm doing is I'm kind of going along the phrenic. This is actually taking off a little bit of the perineurium, sliding underneath where the pulmonary artery is and trying to get underneath this area so I don't get the pulmonary artery sitting right here. So I don't get into it and we dissect above it. We kind of push up what we're doing and push the, push the pulmonary artery down and just go nice and slow. There's no benefit in rushing in this kind of procedure because you know you have all the scar tissue and the planes aren't quite as clear as you normally would get. So you need to make sure that you see exactly what you're doing. Um, and this is really where the bedside assistant kind of comes in because they're also it's the second set of eyes telling you, nope, stop there, move forward. And we're just plugging away, phrenic nerve, getting underneath here. Now, again, I get my noodle because I can't see the other side very well, the tip, but by putting the noodle through, what it does is it allows me to pass a stapler safely without having to worry where the tip is going to hit because I have the aortic arch, the pulmonary artery, and the brachiocephalic up north. And so I can grab this, pull it through, and then I can put the stapler right in, and we can just guide the stapler right through so that we can take this off without any problems. You see my right hand was seizing there for a second. <laughs> and you bring it in, and then we'll just kind of pull the lung tissue down. And now you can see where the, your tip is when you close. And this will give me a margin of the lung tissue. And now we've taken, so there's the edge of the lung tissue that we've taken off, and now we're just peeling it off the rest of the phrenic nerve so we can keep the phrenic nerve intact. And you can see down here, there's the pulmonary artery that we dissected everything off of. And this is actually the vein right here, and the lobe is now pushed off to the side. Just like watching the video, it was tedious to do it as well. <laughs> And we have it almost all the way off, coming around the phrenic. i got to cut this part out. <laughs> this is. Yeah, there's, unfortunately, there's no robot that currently is um, uh, FDA approved to be used. There are probably about um, 10 different companies that are working on robotic ones. That was a little branch, little Venus branch that we found that um, was actually going into the pericardium. I, presumably going into one of the venous returns. And there's the tumor removed. And um, kind of just pull the whole thing off, and that's that. Um, one, one of my senior partners, this guy Manjit Baines, who has been at Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, for longer than I'm alive. Um, this is uh, the bag that we use. This actually, this bag's really cool. It's called an anchor bag. Um, it's made out of parachute material. Uh, and so you just kind of put it in and um, and essentially is unbreakable. I, I had one resident um, actually break the bag once, but I think it was a defect of the bag, not how strong the resident was. So now you see the phrenic nerve skeletonized but intact. You see the pulmonary artery intact. There's no bleeding. And we've essentially cleared out all of level 5 and level 6 lymph nodes. Um, and everything's done. And you know, this chest wall isn't bleeding or anything. So you can do way more robotically then I would never even think about trying to attempt to do this fast. And actually, from an open procedure, I was saying, so, so Manjit Baines came into the room and he watched a portion of it. And he said to me, he said, honestly, I'm not so sure that we would have been able to do this open with the visualization. We've also done it, um, so I've had a recurrent tumor in the left upper lobe that was um, abutting but not invading into a lima graft. So a person had bypass surgery and the left internal mammary artery that was going to their, um, their left anterior descending was open. 
and the tumor was abutting it. And so we were able to actually dissect off with a pair of scissors off the lemograph, the tumor, and take it out. So you can do a lot more with a robotic approach than you can with the standard BATS approach. So this is Dr. Valerie Rushu, um, really was instrumental in us moving the whole program forward. She basically said, we're going to do it regardless of what anyone says about it, and we're going to push it, and we're going to do it right, and we're going to look at what we're doing and what our complications are, and we're going to change the procedure as we do it. We did that both for both lung and esophageal. We have a case series of over 120 esophageal cases that um, is equivalent uh, in terms of outcomes to an open esophagectomy, except that they leave the hospital four days sooner, and we have a lower uh, risk of leak rate in that patient population. We have about an 8% leak rate, and the open's about 12%, and that's statistically different. Um, this is the bedside console, which is actually, I mean, the bedside uh, uh, cart, which is a little different now with the new XI. And this is what you basically do is you just kind of sit in there and you look inside a little thing and hold on to joy. They're essentially like joysticks, they're actually little graspers. <clears throat> so now, I'm not like, you know, a fanboy of robotic surgery in the sense of what the current model is. And so I was saying, we're intuitive is the only game in town right now, which is a little bothersome for me. Um, it has a huge profile and it has a predefined setup. It makes it difficult for us to try different approaches or change in the middle of a procedure. The console is tethered to the surgeon and you're away from the bedside. So it's fine when I have someone at the bedside that knows what they're doing, but when I have a new PA or a resident at the bedside, I can tell you right now I lose a lot of years off my life any time that they put any instrument inside there because I can't, I can't adjust them. I have to, I have to direct them from, from being away, from 10 feet away. There's absolutely no haptic. You have no feedback. So I push on something, and the instrument doesn't push back on me. So I can't tell how hard I'm pushing, except for visually. It's incompatible with most imaging. I can't use CT or MR overlays. So I can have a CT scan, and if I'm trying to find something, it's not going to help me unless I can think about it in my head. They're rigid instruments still. So there's no snake-like instruments. They're just straight instruments, though you do have wristing. They've just come out with a stapling device. The problem is the stapling device requires a much bigger port, and it's very slow. So that they're coming with things. It's not perfect. And there's limited image integration. Really, the ability for us to integrate the robotics image with a lot of other things would be very beneficial for us. So what would I like? Clearly, I'd like to have feedback. I mean, a, an Xbox 360 actually gives you haptic feedback when you're playing with it, but we can't have a robot to it. It's a little ridiculous, I have to say. I want to be able to have a modified platform. It needs to be low profile. It needs to be light. I need increased strength and rigidity. The problem is with some of these instruments, you try to push things off to the side, and the arm is not strong enough to move things over. And I want it adaptable. I don't always need four arms. Sometimes I need six, sometimes I need two. And it would be nice to be able to have the difference of being able to have a couple of arms and not have this huge hulking thing that kind of sits over the patient and you can't get anywhere near it. We definitely need usable stapling devices, more energy sources, and I think the idea of flexible arms is really kind of cool. There's a couple of uh, instruments I'm going to show you. Um, there's other things like single-site surgery. I think for abdominal cases, it makes sense for single-site surgery. But within the thorax, it's really difficult because you're, you're defined by the rib spaces. And so having multiple instruments go through one site, I think, would be more painful for patients than actually having them go through multiple areas. You need image overlay and guidance. A heads-up display would be really wonderful so that I can actually stand there standing up and see it in front of me. We have that in cars now. You know, so actually, a lot of the cars in 2015 and 2016 all have heads-up displays. Um, and I would really like the ability to work while I'm sterile. I would love to have the robotic instruments with me at the bedside so that if there's something, I can immediately go and do what I need to do at the bedside and not have to be tethered to some console. And what's interesting is that some of these things are already in development. So flexible robots are being developed at Pittsburgh for transoral surgery. It contours to the patient's anatomy 
you minimize the number of arms. It has two working arms and a camera, and they're using LED lights for, uh, for visualization. And what's really, really cool about this is that it basically takes a flexible instrument. And this is a prototype, so this isn't FDA approved or anything, but it takes, a, it takes a flexible instrument, and it goes into the mouth so that you can do surgery within it. And they have this little thing where they have instruments that come out with a little LED light and a little camera on it so you can actually have the ability, not straight instruments, but instruments coming from the side. And that's really the size. That's the size of a dime. It's not much bigger than that. And this is what it looks like inside the person. So this is actually them using it. And what's really cool is with the, as they go down, the instrument knows where it is, and the rest of the instrument will follow the identical track that the tip of the instrument went. So if I make turns and go everything, it doesn't just kind of keep pushing. It actually follows the identical track that the tip of the instrument went, both forward and backward. Now, single-site surgery improved cosmetic. It might decrease the pain. It can be modified for endoscopic approaches. And, but it, more than anything else, I think it really helps develop instruments. And this is kind of what Intuitive tried to do with their old, mod, their old uh, robot. Basically, they took the robot and they just made curved instruments. It's horrible. It's probably one of the worst setups ever, and it doesn't really work very well. But there are other places that are, do, that are creating single-site um, surgery with instruments that actually kind of come out like crab's arms. And what they're doing is they're creating these instruments that this thing collapses down to this, and then when it gets inside, it pops open. And it has a camera with a light and two instruments that are operating. And this is all through about a 15-millimeter port. So this is, these are all being developed. And so instead of having multiple incision points, you have single, and it's able to do through a single incision with similar capabilities. <clears throat> so we're changing the way that the master is. So you have nine degrees of freedom. It's attached to the tip. So you actually have these instruments now that you can do multiple things with because of all the different cabling that they have. So you can move the tips of the instruments. And these are endoscopic instruments. So these fit through an endoscope. So you can do like an EGD, and you can use these instruments to do surgery through it. DLR, it's a kind of a uh, part of the German government, uh, part of their aerospace um, uh, engineering <coughs> uh, development uh, system. They have four independent arms that are made out of a carbon fiber and ceramic uh, model. They're uh, lightweight. They have a force feedback. They have a heads-up display. And you can move the arms without changing the location of the instrument. So once the instrument's in place, it actually you can take the whole arm and move it, and it'll keep the instrument where it needs to be. And it's programmable for biopsy options. So you can actually take a CT scan and say, I want you to go here, and this is the way I want you to go. And you put the person in. It laser guides where it is, and it goes and does the biopsy and comes out. It's pretty cool. So this is the setup. Each of these arms are independently. There's a track on the side of the bed that you can take the arm off and pop it into different places. You can add one, two, three, or four arms. And then you have these little things where you kind of just use it, and they have a heads-up display. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to change the user interface so that you have kind of virtual reality. So you can stand there and see like you're in the field. The nice thing is, is that it allows for image overlay, and you can perform the surgery virtually. So they don't even need to be in the room. You can actually be. They've done some of these surgeries where they've had people in India when they're doing it in the United States. You can show various things beforehand, so you can map out areas of concern, uh, of concern, define the anatomy, and it's a great teaching tool. So we can take a, a CT scan, make it into a 3D image, put it into the system, and then say, I want you to operate on them, and we can actually have them now operate virtually, and then go in on the identical CT scan that you did for the patient that's going to the OR, now they can actually do it real. So creating things where they're putting gloves on, and they'll allow you to move your fingers. And this is actually coming. 
you have the image, you have your 3D image and you're wearing a pair of goggles, you have the tips of the instruments for what's going on, and you have a real-time video feed from the OR, and you're kind of just sitting in a little console and you're able to operate. So the current robotic platform is the tip of the iceberg, and I really believe this. We're not going to see robots, robotics go away. I think that we're going to see the cost go down significantly. We're going to see new instruments come out. We're going to see new players in there. We're not going to have Intuitive be the only game in town, and I think that that's going to be really beneficial for patients. We're going to see integration of imaging. We're going to see navigation. I think that's going to be huge, especially for liver tumors or retroperitoneal lymph nodes that you can't find because you don't know where they are. You can actually have GPS on the tip of the instrument, and using an EM field, you're going to be able to find exactly where it is based upon your CT imaging beforehand. We'll have flexible instruments with small incisions, and we're really working on a lot of, and this is a lot of the stuff that I'm doing, is new energy sources um, that will allow you to bronchoscopically or robotically go in, just like we use RF ablation of liver tumors. They're actually coming up with a whole new slew of different types of you know, either microwave or electroporation or a lot of other things that will allow you to actually kill tumors in real time in the operating room. Thank you. Thank you, David, and I hope that you now understand why we are so excited to have David as the new thoracic surgery chief. Uh, we have eight minutes for questions. How big of a needle? Go ahead. David, at one point you said one improvement you'd like to see is being able to be sterile and near the patient and not in the consult. And later on you showed that you could be like one of these drone pilots. You could be in D.C. following away in some distant location. Right. Um, what is the trade-off issue? I mean, how often do you find that you have bleeding or some unexpected complication, you actually need to be sterile. Um, so uh, thanks for asking that. <laughs> the bleeding complications. So in, the, in, in our initial experience, it happened three times. Um, and um, and it, is, uh, it can be catastrophic. Uh, so the ability to, to be there immediately um, is important. What we did, and it was probably the biggest thing we did, was the institute what was called a robotic fire drill. And it, it made everyone in the room know what, would, what was supposed to be done if there was a bleeding event. Because what happened when we had uh, a really bad outcome was that um, the bedside person didn't know what to do and pulled all the instruments out. And so all of a sudden, we have no ability to visualize and no ability to control, and the person's just bleeding. Um, so I don't think it happens often, but it would be easier for me to stay sterile and do the whole operation than it would be for me to break scrub, go over, and then if there's someone's having a problem at the bedside, Rescrub in, go and show them what needs to be done, and go out. Um, I think that that's probably the the biggest benefit of it. Uh, for most cases, you don't need to be sterile; you can do it. I think the massive benefit of being able to be completely detached from the entire thing, meaning not even in the room but far away, is really kind of telemedicine. The idea of being able to to have a surgeon at a location have another person helping them who's not in the physical location. So, like I talked about, you know, 15 to 20% of patients in the United States are getting minimally invasive surgery. That number should be closer to 80 to 85%. The only way that we're going to get that is you're going to, you can't have every person coming to a center because our healthcare system isn't set up that way right now. We're not creating regional centers like they have in Canada. Or if you want to go for lung cancer, there's four places that you go for your lung cancer surgery. Um, 
So we're going to have smaller hospitals that are going to be wanting to do these procedures and patients that are going to want them at smaller hospitals. And can we, as physicians at a major medical center, allow, be able to help them do these procedures while you, know, you train them and then they come, they see it here at the institution, and then you have them go back and you help them do the case by telemedicine. So it's a, I know it's kind of a schizophrenic way to look at it that I want to be scrubbed in at the bedside, but I also want to be you know, 150 miles away. But I think the technology would allow us to do both of those pretty easily, and it really does kind of lend itself to really, really difficult cases that I want to be at the bedside in case there's a problem, or in the cases where someone's 150 miles away. How, like, you would have to have enough robotic instruments. So my question is, how transferable are the instruments among different specialties? Almost all the same instruments. Yeah, I have to say that there's maybe one or two uh, more for preference than anything else that people use. But there's, a, there's probably about 12 total instruments right now that are available for the robot. I use four of them, and most other people use those four or maybe a fifth or a sixth one. Yeah. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about your research? Just mention it briefly. So um, what, what we started to look at was um, specifically what could we, how could we push the limit? In the United States, most patients that are undergoing lung cancer surgery that have had anything or that are 2A or above are almost exclusively open procedures. So we have, I had a series of about 42 patients that were 2A and above that had induction therapy beforehand. We had a conversion rate of 10%. We had a hospitalization stay of 1.7 days, um, and uh, and we don't have long enough. It's, I've only been doing it for three and a half years, so we don't have long, enough long-term data. Um, but I had patients walk out of the hospital not taking narcotics, which is unheard of for induction cases. Uh, I think that that's probably one of the major re one of the major benefits of it for our robotics. And we you know we have 120 uh, esophageal robotic cases. The leak rate is lower. Um, the patients get out of the hospital sooner. And what we're looking at now is actually that we get post-op, uh, we get esophagrams on them to see if there's leaks. And we look at, we've now looked at how the conduit empties. And we found, and we don't know why this is, but the, the ones that are done robotically, the conduit empties better, is more in line than when we do it open. And we think that it has something to do with the fact that <clears throat> we have the patient in really steep Trendelenburg when we do it, and we think that when we pull it up, it actually is under more tension the way that it would normally lie when we pull the stomach up into the chest cavity. And so our anastomosis gets rid of the redundancy of the stomach. And so that, that's important for patients. I actually just saw one in clinic before I came over because he had it done uh, thoracoabdominal, and he can't drink more than about six ounces. And then he has reflux, and he has mad reflux. He actually says that he sleeps now sitting with pillows, and he sits with, because his stomach is so redundant that he's just having massive reflux and, and emptying problems. So there might be benefits that we don't even know about right now, but what we've decided is, is that we were doing quartiles. So every 20, we, on a daily basis, we'd be you know, looking at our patients and seeing what the outcomes were. But every 25 patients, we did a statistical analysis on the outcomes. And we went back and we compared it to our open. And we said, what are we doing well and what are we not doing well? We had an initial experience where we were having tracheoesophageal fistulas. We're trying to figure out why are we having tracheoesophageal fistulas, and what it was was the energy source is different. We were using our harmonic to do the level seven lymph node, so the subcarinal lymph node dissection, and that's very close to where the staple line is for the anastomosis, and it was causing a problem. So we changed the energy source. We've had zero since then. Right. So I think this is probably the most important part: is that as new technology is brought in, we don't want a company to come in and say, "You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this," and everyone jumps on the bandwagon because they're afraid that they're going to lose market share. 
what we need to do is we need to say, okay, what's the benefit of the technology? What are the downsides of it? And then follow it prospectively as we do things to see where it works best, because sometimes it not, might not be the best for the original indication of the robotics was cardiac. It's barely being used for that. It's being used in other things. And then what are we doing wrong that we can change the procedure so that we can get it done better and safer for the patient with better outcomes? And if you're not doing that, I, honestly, I, I think it's probably, it's, it's detrimental to not only the entire health system, but specifically to your patient. In radiation oncology, one of the new angle gadgets kind of kicking around over the last year or two, something like well, it's so new the terminology kind of agreed upon, but uh, electronically generated low energy radiation sources. So basically, you can generate radiation using electronics. Um, have folks been exploring that sort of thing at all in this context? Yeah, so there's, um, there's, I'd say that there's probably four major U.S. companies and probably about 15 startups that are all looking at new ways to, to uh, essentially fry a tumor uh, is probably the best way to describe it. Um, I would resist that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, so there's, um, the Japanese um, have done a, a lot of work with microwave, um, which seems to work really well because of the water content of the lung and the tumors in the lung, um, and how it doesn't damage normal lung tissue but will do the solid lesions. Um, there are some people that are looking at the idea of brachytherapy, but at, at a localized source. I don't know specifically if they're using an electric current to create the radiation or if they're using a seed um, that they know the specific distance and how long it needs to be there. Uh, we're using RF. There's a cryoablation is also being used with the idea being if I can navigate out to a lesion and I can in real time show that I'm in the lesion, either by biopsy or confocal microscopy or something else, then it's safe for me to treat the lesion. Now we just have to figure out how we treat it best. And that's really where everyone's working on. I mean, I, I, gave, a, I gave a TED talk, uh, a TED Med talk, I guess it's called, about you know, kind of innovation and where you put things uh, out. And, and what I, at the end of it, I challenge people with saying, what I want to do is I want to walk into the operating room and I want to have a CT scan that's been done or a PET scan that's been done. I want to be able to do a bronchoscopy where I can navigate out to the lesion, I can diagnose them, I can stage them, and I can make treatment decisions in the operating room and treat them at the same time, and then they can go home the same day. And I think that we'll get there. That might not be tomorrow. It might not be in 10 years from now. But we're, the technology is starting to catch up with what we want to do, that we're going to get to the point we're going to be able to do that. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.